0: Uh, Let's get into God's Word this morning. In your Bible, I hope you have one, or your app, um, Romans chapter 12. Move to Romans chapter 12, if you would. On the black Bibles around the room, I don't know what page number that is, but when somebody gets there and you know the page number for Romans chapter 12, shout it out so other people can find their way. 891. 891. And there is no shame ever in using the table of contents. Do we have an understanding? If you need the table of contents, you go to the table of contents and you find your way. That's how all the other good books work. Why not this one? Romans chapter 12. This is God's word. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. And the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, we are one body in Christ. And individually, we are members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. So if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit or in the spirit. Do not be haughty or proud, but associate with the lowly or give yourself to humble tasks. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is God's word. Father, would you speak to us and give us a vision of what partnership as a family looks like in Jesus name do it please amen <clears throat> present future is a series that we've been in this is actually the 10th week and we're landing the plane this morning it's a series all about alignment it's about defining our target and and seeking to hit the mark aiming all of our aligning all of our energy in order to to hit the mark that God has before us now as an adult i have never been part of a church that does partnership or membership. I'm going to use those, those phrases interchangeably, and I'll tell you why in just a moment. We've never done membership, partnership here. It's not something that we have done. I've considered it uh, off and on over the course of uh, pastoring this church. I've had some conversations with some of you uh, about it, and I've been hesitant to formalize membership, partnership. And the number one reason that I've been hesitant to formalize partnership is because I wanted to avoid potentially abusive realities that asks a congregation to commit to being accountable to only one elder myself. And then number two, I just have never seen it done in practice, that is to say, I've never been a part of a church who has done membership or partnership at all, not to mention well, just at all. So many of us, we repeat what we have seen and we have a taste of what we have seen and experienced. And so it's easy for us to lean in. And for some reason, I've just been resistant to it over time. However, I'm having a significant change of mind and it's been happening for about a year. It's probably been happening for longer than that, um, but it's really been kind of turning up within me over the course of the last year. And here's what I believe this morning. I believe that partnership is going to be a key way that I help lead all of life toward faithfulness to Jesus. How? By stepping toward spreading out leadership, spreading out care, and spreading out responsibility and ownership among us. I believe that membership and partnership clarifies boundaries, goals, and accountability. It helps to clarify who we are and who we are not. It helps to clarify what we are in pursuit of and what we are not in pursuit of as a church. So, here's here's the big idea this morning. This is what I want just kind of hanging over our time together. It's this. Partnership is a key way. It's not the only not by any stretch, but it is a key way that we solidify and strengthen our collective faithfulness to Jesus. In our um, vision statement that we have shared over the weeks, it it starts like this. It says that we are all about um, that that Jesus is king in everything. We exist for him and because of him and to him be glory and honor forever. And therefore, we exist to saturate the inland Northwest and the nations with the good news of Jesus. And the way that we want to do that is through the formation of wholehearted disciples who are living together in life-giving relationships so that every man, woman, and child who Jesus gives us and sends us to is seen, known, loved, and gospeled well. And all of that praise and all of that fruit, whatever he might do in us, is aimed at him. He is ultimately our reward, and so we give him credit. I believe that partnership is a key way that we solidify and strengthen our faithfulness to Jesus. What it effectively does is brings everything that we've been talking about and more in this present future series, it brings it together, like cinches the mouth of the bag, so to speak. Isn't this just like, isn't partnership just a way to say membership? Yeah, absolutely it is. But if you know me, I believe that words matter and how we say things matters. Some words are more helpful in certain times and seasons than other words are in times and seasons. So when I say membership, whether you know it or not, whether I know it or not, there's a whole slew of meaning and definition that comes behind that. What do you currently have memberships to? You have memberships to your gym. You have memberships to Netflix. You have memberships to Amazon Prime. You have memberships to Costco. There are a series of benefits and costs to that membership, and it kind of, it functions in this push and pull contractual way. But when I say partnership, it brings with it a whole different set of definitions, potentially, doesn't it? The person that we have sworn our life to, for those of you who are married, your spouse, you refer to as your partner. Even people who are cohabitating for years and decades call their significant other their partner. We have partners in ministry. We have partners in organizations. We have partners in businesses as well. We have partners, uh, it, it's this language, partner is, that, that has this um, common mission baked into it. So for example, we're partnering with these other three churches in Coeur d'Alene, Transform, Doxa, and Revelation, to do what? We're partnering together as we worship in this Advent season, but also for the sake of the gospel here in our region and beyond, And so we are working together. Um, Hopefully, our community begins to see and to feel how there are local churches in this area who really, really love one another and who are for one another and who collaborate for the greater good. I think that partnership matters. So this morning, here's what I'm going to try to do um, as we conclude present future. I want to clarify a few things and i 'll tell you what they are in just a moment and then, after I clarify a few things, I want to call you to consider your, to consider that 's all i 'm asking for. I want you to consider giving yourself to partnership within all of life church that lays out clear expectations and benefits, all of which will serve together to strengthen us as a disciple making family of disciples. so this morning here 's what I want to try to clarify for us we 'll look at who the church belongs to. We'll look at what the church is. We'll look at where the church is. And we'll look at who the church is. And then I'll land with why partnership matters. And so then at that point, if who we are as a family, if who all of life is and what we're aiming for is something that draws you in, something that interests you, where you're like, "Mm, not quite sold, but I'd like to know more, that qualifies as interest. If you're like, yeah, tell me more, that qualifies as interest. If you're like, I don't know, it sounds good, but ah," that qualifies potentially as interest too. I'm gonna ask you then, if that's you, to write your name on a Connect card and to just write partnership in the little blank box on a Connect card in the back of your seats and just to slip it into the giving box. And then I will follow up with you in the next week or two. And so what I will follow, you, follow up with you about is um, ways that we can potentially form a defined, committed core in early 2022. I'm not going to be asking for anything other than interest this morning. So you can take the walls down if you've had bad experiences with membership. You can, like, you can rest where you are. Now, who the church belongs to. Um, Like I said, we exist because of King Jesus and for King Jesus. And so ultimately, the church, ours for sure, does not exist for herself. So we do not exist just for the benefit of the people within this room. That's not the only reason we exist. Ultimately, we exist to display the glory and the goodness of Jesus Christ. He is the one who builds his church. And so what the church does is actually make the gospel of Jesus visible. If you picture a lampstand with a light on the top of it, the church functions as that lampstand. And the gospel and the person and work of Jesus Christ is that light that changes the world. The church works to elevate it so that it can be seen and felt and experienced. And a key way that Jesus' glory is displayed through his church is through the good that he does for us, the good that he does to us, and the good that he does through us. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to John chapter 3. I don't know if I have ever read this verse at all of life before. John chapter 3, verse 16. You know it. Maybe some of you by heart. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him, in Jesus, should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. That's not why God sent Jesus, but rather that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in Christ is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name or the entirety, the glory of the only son of God. And just not believing is ultimately rejection. So those of us here who embrace this with glad hearts are recipients of this grace. Jesus, the Father, the Holy Spirit, they have done something in particular for us. They have made a way for us to have peace. And they haven't just done something for us, but they've done something to us. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, just to the right to Ephesians chapter four. So you go past Acts and Romans, and Corinthians, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, and then you'll be in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 24. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Ephesus about their way of life. He's just explained the gospel, and he's starting to apply it. He's actually been applying it for a little while now, but he's, he's right in the middle of the thought. <clears throat> and in your Bibles, it probably has some sort of a heading that says something like the new life. That's what he's describing, what he's what he's done to us, what he's doing to us. Paul says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. We're called to something different. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, and that ignorance is in them due to a cause, their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way that you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. You've been taught to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. So put off your old self and be renewed in the spirit of your minds to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is what he's doing to us and in us. But he also wants to do something through us. Keep going to the right. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. So you'll go past the pastorals, Timothy um, Titus, Hebrews, James, and then you'll be at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. This is what the apostle Peter writes to the church. He says, But you are a chosen race. This is applicable to you, all of life. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his, Jesus' own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's what he wants to do through us. He wants us to proclaim his excellencies. He's called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And then he goes on, he says, beloved, I urge you. This is exhortation. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, your way of life honorable, Keep your online conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The day when the Spirit of God visits them in a special way, they will have witnesses that they think of and go, that person is legitimate. Thank you, Lord, for them. In present future, we've been talking about the formation of wholehearted disciples. And so a wholehearted disciple recognizes that Jesus has done something for us, that Jesus is doing something to us and in us, and that Jesus will continue making his disciples through us. And we need to understand that the power center and the source and all of this work and fruitfulness and movement is Jesus Christ, We are his possession, we are his bride, we are his body. This leads me to another point here, what the church is. Whenever we see the word church, that English word church in our Bibles, there's a Greek word underneath it. And the Greek word underneath it is the word ekklesia. And ekklesia means assembly. So the church is the assembled, the gathered together people of God. Here's one kind of just pithy way that we say it around here the church is not an event we attend or a building that we go to, but the church is the family to which we belong. You don't go to a church building. That building is the church. Is The church is the people of God. And there are implications to all of this that we might not see right on the surface, and they're beautiful implications. The family that we belong to is assembled right here in this place. As awkward as it might feel, look around. The family that we belong to is assembled here this morning. We're missing some of them. But it's you and I. The people who can most know you and who you can most know are right here among you this morning. Jesus means for you and I to commit to knowing and being known by one another. He doesn't mean for church to be a Sunday event where no knowing takes place, but for the church as the people of God to be a people who co-mingle on a regular basis and serve together and serve one another. And it's beautiful. I had a friend reach out um, earlier Um, this month, and just said, man, I'm like, I'm humbled, and I'm overwhelmed. I sent an ask for help, and the amount of help that I got was incredible, and it's absolutely humbled me. I'm so thankful for my church family, and what this brother was saying is he's thankful for you. 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 Something else, though, the beauty of the church gets bigger, it gets more vivid. So I want to answer this question, where the church is. The church is both local and global. And one aspect of the church that I'm not even going to touch on right now is it's also like it spans generations in time. So the church consists of people who are no longer alive in the flesh today, but are with God presently. But as As far as the church, the living, breathing people of God who are on the globe right now, there is a local aspect. Jesus's people aren't just right here, though this is an expression of Jesus's church, but they're also down the street. They're at real life ministries and they're at his place. And they're across town at Transform and Revelation and Doxa, and they're across the border at Soma Spokane, and they're across oceans in Afghanistan and Germany and Brazil and Mexico and Canada and spanning the globe. They have elders and pastors or, or, or. Um, leadership structures. They're localized groups, pockets, if you will, of people who live life together, knowing one another and being known by one another. They're proclaiming the, the good news of Jesus in word and in deed to the people in their spheres of influence. And they're striving together as these localized networks and groups of people to live together in a way that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus. As the Apostle Paul would say to the Philippian church, they are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. But these localized pockets of people are part of a much larger, intimately connected network, part of a global church, a capital C church, if you will. While we might not know Vietnamese or German or Pashto, We are also siblings in a family united under the kingship of Jesus Christ with these people who speak these other languages. That's why we stopped what we were doing this last September and just devoted an entire Sunday to praying for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. They grieve, we grieve. They're hurting, we're hurting. Remember what I read at the very beginning out of Romans chapter 12. We rejoice with those who rejoice and we weep with those who weep we're connected by one spirit who gives us one mind under one Christ I was thinking about how to like how to flesh this out this this connection. Um, to this larger network of Christians, the globe over. We don't know each other. We have never seen or laid eyes on one another. We don't even speak necessarily the same languages, but the same spirit testifies that we are siblings in one family. And for some reason, I thought of, I'd heard this, um, some some facts about coral reefs. Have you ever learned about coral reefs and how they communicate? It's Phenomenal. There's a guy named James Nestor who is a free diver, and he wrote a book. It's a New York Times bestseller called Deep, and it's all about the intricacies and the mysteries of our oceans and his experiences with them. And he writes this about coral reefs. Every year on the same day, at the same hour, usually within the same minute, corals of the same species although separated by thousands of miles, will suddenly spawn in perfect synchronicity. The dates and times vary from year to year for reasons that only the corals know. We don't know. It doesn't just happen on September 17th. It happens at different times, but it all happens at the same time for those species. Stranger still, while one species of coral spawns for one hour, so notice one color here is on the screen is a picture of one species. Another species right next to it waits for a different hour or a different day or a different week before spawning in synchronicity with its own species. Distance seems to have no effect. If you broke off a chunk of coral and placed it in a bucket beneath a sink in London or Post Falls, that chunk would in most cases spawn at the same time as other coral of the same species around the world. Coral is the largest biological structure on the planet and covers some 175,000 square miles of the seafloor, and it can communicate in a way far more sophisticated than anyone ever thought. And yet, coral is one of the most primitive animals on earth. It has no eyes, no ears, and no brain. The church of Jesus Christ is not primitive. (laughs) It does have eyes and ears and a backside and a head. And the head is Jesus Christ. He is the head of his body, the church. So, who the church is? The church uses a handful of metaphors to describe Jesus' new covenant people. He uses phrases like a field, or an olive tree, or a flock, or branches, or bride, or family, buildings made up of living stones. Interdependence exists in all of these metaphors in some fashion, but there's a metaphor that the New Testament uses that's especially helpful to describe interdependency, and it's this. He, Jesus, is the head of his body, the church. The Apostle Paul uses this metaphor, body. It's the Greek word soma. It's what soma spoke in. Like that's kind of the, the thought and the idea behind our um, parent church is that we're a body of interconnected People, The Apostle Paul uses this word body or soma uh, to describe Jesus' church in several of his letters. He uses it in Romans, he uses it in Corinthians, he uses it in Ephesians, and also in Colossians. And what's kind of interesting about this word body and the Bible's use of it, the Apostle Paul's use of it in particular, is he he uses it um, 42 different times in an explicit way to refer to the body of Christ. But they don't always mean the same thing. Like you can divide them actually into four different categories of meaning. So sometimes when the Apostle Paul refers to the body of Christ, he literally means the body of Jesus hung on a tree. Sometimes when he refers to the body of Christ, he's referring to the bread of the table, the bread of communion. Jesus said, this is my body broken for you. Other times, the Apostle Paul uses it to, or actually the New Testament uses it to, to um, describe the temple of God. Jesus in John chapter two would say, you'll tear down the temple, but I will rebuild it again in three days. And then John introduces this little um, parenthesis there that says he was referring to his body as the temple. That is the body of Christ that Jesus was referring to. But the fourth one is the community of Christian believers. And here's what's kind of interesting. Anytime body of Christ is used in the New Testament, well, 31 out of 42 references in the New Testament refer to the, the fellowship of Jesus' people as the body of Christ. 31 out of 42. That's basically three quarters. 75% refer to us as the church, this body. And so the Apostle Paul uses um, this metaphor in Romans chapter 12. And body Uh, actually is used as a metaphor for the church more frequently in 1 Corinthians chapter six. But Romans 12 is this incredible chapter on how Jesus's church is to relate to one another. And so I read it to open up our time together and I wanna go back to it right now. But here's kind of the stage. Um, Romans chapter 12 is coming right on the heels, duh, of Romans chapter 11. But Romans chapter 11 ends with this doxology, this, uh, this expression of worship. It's actually what our church, like, kind of the idea that the, this name, All of Life, that our church is founded on. And it's this, for um, Romans chapter 11, verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And then in Romans chapter 12, the apostle Paul starts to apply what he's just taught in the previous 11 chapters to the church. What Paul has just taught in the previous 11 chapters is the gospel. He's taken 11 full chapters to try to describe to the church in Rome just how beautiful and wonderful and magnificent and explosive the good news of Jesus is. He's been doing theology with the church the whole way and almost entirely resists applying it until Romans chapter 12. And then in Romans chapter 12, he begins to explain it. Now, um, it's important that we get this. The, The letter to the Romans here is not the letter to the Roman. It's the letter to the Romans. It's not written to individuals. It's written to a community of faith. It's written to a community of believers. It's written to a small church body in Rome, possibly no larger than our church right here, 150, 140 people, something like that, a, a small church in this Roman province. Everyone here seen and known. So he says, after Romans 11:36, for from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be the glory forever. He says, I appeal to you, therefore. That therefore is to point us back to everything that he has just said. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God. That's what he's just described in 11 chapters, the mercy of God in the gospel. In light of all of that, would you please present your bodies? I know you're alive, but present your bodies as this living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, a willingness to just go where he says and do what he says. Do not be conformed to this world, Paul writes. Do not be taught and shaped and formed anymore by this world as your teacher, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing that by testing all of this gospel out, you might discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Paul's experienced great grace. He's like this proud Pharisee who's excelling among his peers and then literally gets humbled into the dirt by the real Jesus. He knows what it is to be humbled, and he's urging this church, you too, don't think that you're better than you really are, but think with sober judgment about yourself, each one of you according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So God has some sovereignty in in how he assigns faith, and we have some differences in how we live by faith, because when I was a believer, when I had a powerful encounter with the Lord Jesus in 2004. I felt like my faith was at the top, at the pinnacle of my life up until that point. But I guarantee that my faith is stronger in 2021 than it was in 2004. And so the spirit of God has been continuing to give me greater faith. And he's doing that same work in you. But you have the faith that you have now in the moment. He says, for as in one body, we've got many parts or members and the members do not all have the same function. So we though, we're many, we're actually one body in Christ and we're individually members of one another. I don't want you to miss that, church. We're individually accountable to one another. We matter to one another. If I fade out or burn out or fall spectacularly, that will affect you. And when you do the same, it affects me and it affects your brothers and sisters. I owe it to you to keep a watch on my life and you owe it to me to keep a watch on yours and to one another. We need one another. We have gifts that Differ according to the grace that's given to us. So there's variety, there's diversity. Let us use these gifts of prophecy in proportion to our faith and service in our serving. The one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, that's like strong encouragement. The one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And then this heading in your Bible probably says something like marks of the true Christian. And Paul just starts to rattle off these little one-liners here. Let your love be genuine. Like, say what you mean and be who you are. Let your love be genuine to one another. Listen to this. Abhor what is evil. Abhor it. Let yourself call evil evil. May we have a good definition of what is evil in the world that we live in. May we train our minds to know it and to discern it and to abhor it, to call it evil. And contrarily, let us hold fast to what is good, to love one another with brotherly affection. Now, some siblings hate each other, so that's not a very good analogy if we're looking through that lens, but... The ideal here is brotherly affection, the kind that if, if, if we have not seen one another for some time, the way that we embrace and draw one another in and serve one another when it's inconvenient to us really matters. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Imagine if all of us lived into this. Rather than outdoing one another in being right and in winning arguments and being first, what if we made it our goal to outdo one another in showing honor? the competition then becomes honoring each other. Would we flourish? No. Communities would flourish. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit, or that could be translated in the Holy Spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Constant together in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality, drawing in the stranger. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but associate with the lowly or don't be above humble tasks. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. I gotta do what's honorable for me. Me, 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 me. How has that gone for our society? There have been times that we absolutely have to make decisions because we're in situations that we have to get out of. We have to look out for ourselves. As a general principle, though, Give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. We're so tempted constantly to avenge ourselves in little arguments or in bigger things, but leave it to the wrath of God. You cannot carry that kind of weight of vengeance. It will eat you up. It is written in the scriptures, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Can we trust him to do that? To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Well, that doesn't sound like, that doesn't sound very loving, like the feeding your enemy part and the, if your enemy is thirsty part, you'll heap burning coals on his head. That could mean a couple of different things it could mean that it draws them to a sense of shame and repentance that by doing such like radical good to them that it will turn their heart around often though in the old testament whenever burning coals are mentioned it means judgment and so if they refuse those good works on the day when they visit when god visits them they will be accountable for their actions and their rejection of him and so they will get judgment And that seems to be the context of actually what he's talking about up above. Don't avenge yourselves, but leave that vengeance to to God. Ultimately, in verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, we have many members in one body, verse 4. The members don't all have the same function. Though many were one body in Christ, we're individually members of one another, and we do have gifts that, diff, that, that differ according to the grace given to us. Now, this to me, um, I, I hope just like God's word briefly explained, it doesn't even really need to be explained, you get the picture. This does not sound to me like the description of a drab church just locked into uniformity. Going through the motions, arms folded, lips tight, just unhappy to be with one another. It does not sound like the picture that Paul is representing in Romans chapter 12. It sounds like a vibrant, interdependent, colorful, diverse church family overflowing with this prophetic hope, just looking to Christ to rescue us and to give us what we need in the moment, trusting that the Holy Spirit is with us in the present. We acknowledge him. He's here present giving each member faith. This looks to me like a church that eagerly looks for ways to serve and come through for each other, where minds are stirred and inspired through good teaching, where you... And I can grow in courage because brothers and sisters believe in you and I and push us, exhort us to trust Christ more today than we did yesterday, more tomorrow than we did today, where people overflow with generosity and nobody lacks what they need, where leaders follow Jesus with compassion and conviction, where mercy, like a good friend, is always looking to lighten the load. This all brings us back to meaningful partnership where I'll land here. I do believe that partnership is a way that we will solidify and strengthen our faithfulness to Jesus. So as a church family, we aimed to, to see wholehearted disciples formed who disciple other people well so that gospel saturation happens and begins to happen through us and beyond us, near and far. Now, we've spent about six weeks talking through our values as a church family right at the very beginning, right out of the gates. We talked through how the gospel is for all of life, where Jesus is the, the son of our solar system. We orient, he is at the center. There's not a pastor or a personality or a common mission or a building or a thing at the center other than Jesus Christ. The gospel of The Son of God is the center for us. That leads us to be a people of joy and of generosity. And so as the gospel continues to come home to us, we're just looking for ways to give a piece away. To just give joy away, to give resource away, to help people around us. We live, we govern our lives. We find our way and our direction by prayer and God's word. We're in intimate fellowship with him as a people, so we're seeking to have the mind of Christ. We're going to the scriptures to see what they say, to see how they might guide us. We practice the one and others in community. Nobody is a log trying to just burn on his or her own, but rather we all are kind of pushed into the fire together where the heat is hotter and the light is Brighter. We're aiming to live our lives together in such a way that we can actually practice the one another's with each other. And fail we will, but succeed we will as well. It doesn't end there. We're zealous to see the lost redeemed, and we're zealous to serve the poor in our midst. That we would be a people of compassion and mercy, a people of sacrifice following after Jesus who gave himself for us and that we would multiply and send disciples and churches that we want to be a river, not a pond. We want to send it on down beyond us. Send our best and brightest. Start new works. This little family started in September of 2015 with 12 adults and 12 kids. Amy, you were here. Judah, Jonah, you were here. You were two of those kids at that time. Wonderful things start small. We've walked through healthy leadership according to the New Testament, elders and deacons. We talked about how elders lead ministry, deacons facilitate ministry, and a congregation does ministry. And now we're turning a corner to greater partnership for the sake of the gospel. I'll be done here. Just give me five more minutes. I'll be done. Here is why partnership matters. We aim to see everyone in the game and on the field. Partnership matters in part. There's a, a number of reasons, and many of which I'm leaving out this morning. I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to generate interest and, and paint a picture for you of why partnership can be good. It defines the relationship, right? DTR, right? Like anytime you're starting out with somebody that you kind of like, there comes a point in your relationship where you've got to define it. I say, what are we doing here? What are we about here? Healthy churches are made up of people who need agreed upon standards for how they will relate to one another. So here's a question that I'm asking When conflict comes, who and what is holding us together? When missional opportunity presents itself, how do we determine what gets a yes, or what gets a no, or what gets a maybe? When decisions are made, is it just one guy running his agenda? Or is it an agreed upon group of leaders who communicate and solicit feedback from the congregation? When people leave or want to leave our church, how do I know as a pastor? How do your pastors know who to pursue and who to let go their own way? Who might need correction and how will it be brought? Do we have standards for this? the majority of all of that is leaning on me and is kind of locked up in me. We are leaning, this is my fault, my problem. We are leaning on me in an, in an unhealthy way. And we need to broaden ownership and responsibility. And it is up to me to start that and to let that go. So how do we decide who can serve in certain areas and who cannot? This is kind of a heavy word here, but partners in a local church can only consist of true disciples of Jesus who are leaning into obedience. Someone who refuses to be baptized cannot be a member within a local church. They can be a part of a community and welcome for days and months and years. If that's you, yes and amen. We are glad that you are here. But if you are not a determined member of Christ's family, then you cannot be a member of a local church. So we need to have distinctions. And we need to have some conversations in order to disciple one another toward allegiance to Jesus. Partnership is going to be a key way that I help personally lead. How? By stepping towards spreading out leadership care and responsibility and ownership and not consolidating it. In the early years, like, I get this. I've lived from this. It's crucial to set culture. And I've been responsible to try to set culture. And many of you have been responsible to set culture, and you are. We've been a church plant for six years. We have a culture, and it's time for us as a family to take measurable God-honoring steps to be more established as a disciple-making body of Christ. And so my aim for you today is to just give you a taste of how Jesus wants his church to live together as partners for the sake of the gospel. And I hope the ball has moved up the field in some way for you and has piqued your interest. And so here is how you can respond. Um, the plan is to begin to craft a mutually recognized set of commitments that simultaneously work in three directions. Picture it like a triangle. Member-to-member commitments. This is what we say we're going to be about for the fellowship. Leaders, two members. This is our responsibility to you. As members, this is what you can hold us accountable to, and then also members to leaders. This is how, according to the scriptures, we will honor and respect and deal with you as our leaders. We want to base it on the scriptures, we want to keep it simple. Simple. We want our vision and values to be a piece of this. And so, if you—if this is your church, if all of life is your church, and you intend to throw in here with this distinct group of quirky citizens, I'd like to keep this—just te- keep it teasing out, to keep teasing it out with you over the next several months. So, this is a final thing I'll say: that uh, our church might not be for you, and that's okay. This fellowship might not be for you. You might have a growing sense within you that this fellowship is not for you. And that is okay. What I want for you is to be a committed member of a local church. That's okay. Like, there is freedom. So as we talk about partnership in the coming months, it's not like a contract that you can't get out of. Come on like we want to be about sending. I left a local church that was healthy in order to throw in with another local church in Coeur d'Alene. And I talked to my leaders and I said, "Here's what we're aiming to do. We just had Maverick and Grace exit to to throw in with a church plant in Spokane with blessing. Like that's our heart. Heart's not to just like lock it down and control. No way. Like our heart is for strengthening and sending." So If you are interested, grab a Connect card and turn it in. Just write partnership in the little white box on the Connect card and just drop it in and I will follow up with you. Okay, I've gone way longer than I wanted to and we're done.